called sunshine. Just because it's the waste product of the sun doesn't mean... <laughs> sun poop! Praise the sun poop. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Downloadable Concept Podcast. There's beauty in the bellow of the blast, it's Fox Lee. Dallin doesn't like my input. He says it has too many fart noises. <laughs> A more humane Mikado in the land never did exist, Jeb Wrench. This space for rent. Our very special guest, and the very model of a modern major general, CompuFreak. Something about animals, vegetables, and minerals. And a policeman's lot is not a happy one. I'm Talon Lee. We have a very special guest here on the podcast today, CompuFree, who will be doing, who will be talking to us about indicate exper- about his indicate experience, and we'll be hearing about all sorts of interesting new games that are coming. But in the meantime, hey Jeb, what have you been playing? I spent some time this week playing the Scream Ride demo on the Xbox One. Screen wipe? And nobody's ever heard of Scream Ride. Screen Ride. Scream Ride. Oh. It is a game about making extremely dangerous roller coasters. And destroying the environment around the the roller coaster with your the, the cars and or passengers. It's the best bits of theme park. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the demo didn't really sell me very well in the game. Nah. But, uh, the construction is pretty. The construction part they let you play in the demo is nice. I didn't really care for the. There's a there's a a riding mini game in it or a riding aspect of it that's. Kind of like Wipeout if it was on a rail and it wasn't a race. Hmm. Okay. And there's like a catapult thing where you throw your you throw a pod full of passengers and try to destroy buildings. <laughs> this is a major title. Do you try to do this as gameplay after you've built the coaster, or is it just you have to design a roller coaster that can achieve these effects? Uh, the, you can play through. There are different levels for each part of it, but uh, the the engineering part you can also do the destroying your environments with your roller coaster and whatnot. Huh. So, Fox, what have you been playing? <laughs> I, why do I always start my what you've been playing with an embarrassed laugh? Because broadly speaking, you are worried about your legitimacy as a gamer because the culture at large has been doing its best to tell you you don't count. Oh yeah, that, that's actually a really good reason. Mm. Okay, well then I have no shame that I've mostly been playing Pokemon Shuffle. No, I wait, I have shame. <laughs> it's a free-to-play microtransaction Nintendo title. It, it's Nintendo going full-on, well, we wanted the mobile game market, but we still want to be able to release stuff on the 3DS. It's Candy Crush Pokemon. Not quite. There's a few key differences. Um, The main thing that sets it apart from other, you know, match three tech games that I've played is that you can swap two tiles anywhere on the board, um, so it's not just next to one another. And the range of things that you have to pay for versus the things you earn by gameplay is a very different balance to the, the actual phone versions I've played. It's better than the other ones. It's still not that good. All right, on the evil scale... (laughs) <laughs> on the evil scale, I would only rate Nintendo about a six for this. Okay, so and, and six by the way, a Dracula's out of ten. Six, yeah, six a Dracula's <laughs> out of ten. On this scale, nine is Zynga, mm-hmm. and ten is what people think Zynga is. <laughs> hey, what about you, Comp? You freak. What have you been playing? Oh, um, a couple different things. Uh, I just uh, happened to get a, a tablet for work. So I've been playing some Puzzle and Dragon, um, because that's what you do. Um, and also, Let There Be Life, which is a, another tablet game. 
where you are building a tree. Really? Yeah. Uh, you you start with uh, sort of the um the core. I love that we were all awed into silence. There, <laughs> you're building a tree. Really? Yeah. Really? Uh, so the 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 way the game works is you start Go with uh, the sort of core of the tree, uh, and you add branches to it with the goal of adding as many leaves as possible uh, to increase the sort of healthiness of the tree. With huh. the caveat being that along the base of the tree are flowers, which you want to have sunlight go to, to increase the healthiness of the ecosystem ah. as a whole. But the leaves will cast shade. So you need to have huh. this nice balance between uh, expanding your tree out as far as possible to, to get as many leaves, and uh, making sure it's not too shady so the flowers can blossom. What have you been playing recently, Talon? I have the shame eyes ready. <laughs> Heroes of the Storm. Oh. Uh. Shame eyes! You can hear the shame eyes. Um, and because that involved putting the Battle.net installer on my computer, I also reinstalled my copy of StarCraft 2. So I've been playing games I've already played and finished. Um, and to round that out, on my laptop, I've been playing Police Quest 1 because I feel the need to document to my friends just how incredibly bad that game is. Yeah, it, it, it kind of is. I, I think it was a while back that, that I actually was thinking about um, using that as, like, the jumping-off point for uh, uh, an article I wanted to write on, on like, uh, more of an essay, really, on, on like, how my have experienced the police through the, the purview of video games over the years. Oh. The thing about Police Quest that, on a replay, has really stood out to me, you know, um, I think it's Daryl Summers, mm-hmm. the, the developer behind it, Daryl Summers. I think that's his name. I'm like the Hey Hey Saturday guy. I'm probably misremembering, but oh, I want it to be. That'd be wonderful. I'm going to cut that because uh, explaining Hey Hey Saturday to Americans is. But <laughs> the developer of Police Quest was legitimately a cop, mm-hmm. and it comes through in all the writing of the game because some of it is really just cruel. Yes, to the people he talks to in the narration, and no one ever bats an eyelid at it. Yep. What one of the disturbances you deal with is a bunch of bikers are at a bar. Yep. And they're parked their bikes on the street legally. Huh. And your complaint uh, is that he's Jim. The developer is Jim Wells, by the way. Jim Wells, thank you. That's um, a completely different name. Yeah, I don't know why I had Daryl Summers in my head. The you go into the bar, <laughs> and the there's a point where in the narration you refer to the people you're about to talk to as a pack of animals. Mm-hmm. This includes the girl who is your eventual love interest in this story. Yep. Oh, lovely. Who the story also <laughs> thankfully refers to as a hooker and a prostitute and all sorts of things that sex workers aren't keen on, to say the least. No, just so she is. A sex worker. She is a sex worker. And she's also your love interest. Yeah. So you're going to, you know, use all you the offensive her. language and stuff, but yeah. you're still going to get some hot sexy hooker, and you're going to save her. Yeah. Now, mm. if I recall that scene in particular, there there's an altercation that happens. When you tell them to leave? Yeah, and then you have actually a choice of what level of force to respond with. In the in the VGA remake, they gave right. you the option of using a degree of force. That's 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 in what I did. In the EGA yeah. original, in the EGA original, your only option is to brandish your nightstick. Mm-hmm. But these bikers are so tough that literally, you know, having your nightstick. The, the narration says you produce your nightstick and t- drop into a defensive stance. That's it. There's like four of them, and they're like, "Whoa, <laughs> he's in a he's in a defensive stance, and he's got a nightstick." 
Come on, us four animals must go. Yeah, I, I remember playing the, the VGA game, and you could either... Um, the correct action was to use your nightstick and, like, check the guy in the stomach to, to disable him. Um, yeah. Which I don't think is, is legal anymore. Um, mm. Not preemptively. <laughs> anymore? <laughs> Fucking hell. Well, America. Um, but uh, the other option they gave you was to actually pull your gun and shoot the person. Um, yep. And I don't think that was a game over. They just admonished you. They said that was not right. That was not. That was not game, good. In the EGA game, they won't let you pull the gun, but in the VGA version, they just dock you points. Yeah. Which means murdering a man without any kind of due process is about as bad as leaving the shower running. Yeah. Ah. It. Very strange mm. stuff. The moral of the story is think about what your game is saying by the actions it encourages. Indeed. Hey, Gumpy Freak. Yes. What is this Indicade? Ah, yeah, so Indicade is a uh, convention that happens um, both in the west of the United States and the east of the United States. And I am in New York, uh, or around the area, so that's where Indicate East is held. It is, uh, like I said, a convention, a celebration of uh, independent games and independent games creators. Um, they hold it in the Metropolitan Museum of the Moving Image uh, in New York, in Queens, uh, and they have uh, big exhibits of uh, interesting, curated uh, indie games and uh, a huge number of panels and talks uh, that goes for three days and lots of cool people end up going there and talking and just hanging out. Um, uh, just uh, just going from my, my Twitter feed over that weekend, it uh, sort of had a, a more even, like an alt game rather than just simple indie this year uh, bent to it, didn't it? Yes, yes it did. In fact, um, TJ Thomas, your boy Tron Maximum, uh, had a talk on Sunday about... Uh, the alt game scene. I say scene, but yeah, the idea that, uh, alt games, uh, as a concept is distinctly different from what we consider indie games. Um, that there's kind of these two branches where alt games is more about just making games so that maybe somebody buys them and pays the rent versus indie games, which is sort of Independent games. Uh, this one, I could not see uh, his speech live because there were too many people in the room they gave him. TJ Thomas is a fire hazard. <laughs> TJ will TJ will burn TJ will burn the house down and rebuild it something better. Yes, he will. <laughs> he is quite exceptional. Uh, TJ Thomas is the developer of Joy Lancer and a member of Alpha 6 production. So, ah. yep. Also been part of a bunch of things and was part of Indie 3. Does his final deadly spread through his roots and set other indie devs on fire 100 yards away? Uh, it might well do. I, yeah. I would go so far as to say yeah. <laughs> See, the, the, the ah, problem. lovely. The problem is that indie devs are, uh, I wouldn't say immune to TJ's fire, but they convert that fire into strength. Um, so uh, I was very terrified for my life because there were incredibly powerful indie <laughs> devs around me at all times. 
TJ's written very powerfully on ideas like getting paid for your work, being mm-hmm. confident in what you do, expressing who you are. Basically all the things that the mainstream indie press was saying, oh, don't try and do too much. <laughs> yep. Were they really? That's a bit irresponsible. Um, you may remember me complaining at length about Jonathan Blow being heralded as an indie saviour because he sunk... Because he made Braid, conveniently <laughs> ignoring that the man had half a million dollars to sink into his indie game. That's kind of a factor. So you were just attending, as it were, as a, a muggle. You yes. were not being invigorated by TJ's fire. <laughs> well, uh, it, it was very easy to feel the both the passion of the developers who were there and, like, the creative energy that existed in the entire convention hall. Uh, they... And you, you, oh, sorry. Go ahead. If you spend if you spend any time talking with TJ, you will feel. The oh fire. yes, uh, I, I I experienced that uh, with Indy Three. <laughs> uh, I did have the pleasure of um, meeting TJ Thomas for dinner after the convention was over, um, uh, along with uh, oh a great number of people. Um, a new challenger uh, is his Twitter handle from uh, Project... Sean, from, Sean Alexander. Yep, Sean Alexander from uh, working on uh, Treachery and Beach Down City. Um, uh, Bloody Be Honey on Twitter. Um, uh, also, uh, Tony Tony uh, from GamerX. Uh, hun- hun- honey is uh, honey is working on... is Cardwitch planning is right. on working on Cardwitch. Yep. Yeah, and it's Tony Ryoka? Yes. I've probably pronounced that surname incorrectly. That's okay. I didn't know most of these people and was just wandering in. Uh, but that that's Rad. apparently something that can just happen. Uh, is you can just say, hi, I'd like to take you to dinner. And then you end up going to their hotel room uh, and, and hanging out and just talking for hours. Uh, that was incredible. Um, that, that That's sort of uh, my takeaway from... Indiecade is that you can go to there's this place that you can go to to hear amazing people talk to see amazing games that people are making and connect with them on a very human level something that you can't even get at at like Twitter Twitter is a very personal form of like communication but it's nothing compared to actually meeting face to face shaking someone's hand we talked for a little bit last week about invisible histories and how a level of corporate opaqueness is keeping parts of gaming history from us. And similarly, the President of the United States, Barack Obama, you've all heard of him, right? He, yeah. Even me. He did an interview with a number of YouTubers, um, one of whom, Hank Green, later wrote an article about why he thinks that happened. And it's because the the low-level producage front of YouTube, the one person and a, and a camera kind of front of media, are sincere. There's, there's a seen, genuine, honest expression of who they are, what they like, what they care about. And I don't know TJ that well. Like, I wouldn't call myself his friend because that would be presumptuous of me. Mm-hmm. But you read his Twitter feed, you know what he cares about. Yes. There is no ambiguity about any of that. And I can't help but imagine that same thing in a, in a live experience with a number of devs is going to come through. Yeah, yeah. It is incredible to be around the people that you meet at Indiecade. Um, uh, speaking of, actually, uh, similar to uh, the game I was playing recently, um, Let There Be Life, uh, I met uh, developers of a card game 
uh, called Resistor, which should be kickstarting card, soon. Card game? Card game? Wait, wait, wait. Uh, Hold Jeff back. No, not a collectible card game, I'm afraid. Uh, oh, that's still that. That doesn't guarantee anything. Yes, uh, Resistor is a game made by. Uh, I will have to look up. I had their business cards ready, and I lost them. Uh, we'll There'll be a link in the description. There's a link in the description. Well, yes. Uh, Resistor is a game where you play, uh, each player, there's two players, uh, you play as, um, supercomputers in the 1980s trying to hack into each other to convince them to launch nuclear weapons so that you can start World <laughs> War Three. It's Skynet. Uh, you do this by manipulating a board of, uh, cards, which have, uh, circuit patterns on them. And you want to trace your color of circuit pattern into, uh, your opponent's computer. Um, what makes it interesting is that there's three moves that you must do on your turn. Uh, you must flip a card over to its reverse side, which has a different pattern for circuit patterns on it. Uh, yeah. you must swap out one of the cards with a card either in your hand, which you can see one side of the patterns, or your opponent's hand, which you can see the reverse side of their patterns. Oh my goodness. Oh, that's clever. It's, it's by, uh, Cardboard Fortress. Cardboard Fortress. Excellent. They are lovely people, uh, by the way. Is this, this is, uh, Anthony, Anthony Amato and Nicole Yes. This is physical cards, by the way, or are we talking about a video game representation? Physical cards. Uh, there's more than just video games at IndieCade. There are a number of board games and physical games. Um, Jeb, does this Jeb, does this remind you of Hanabi? Well, Hanabi, you can't see your own cards at all, can you? Yeah, Hanabi is entirely cooperative. You have to guide your your allies have to guide you onto how to arrange your hand because you can't see it. I'd love to get a copy of that. I, yeah. I suppose it's similar to that, but competitive. <laughs> hmm. Um, so yeah, this, they, they really, you can tell they put a lot of thought into the mechanic of having dual-sided cards and only being able to see half of the information at a time. Um. Yeah, that's really clever. And sort of remembering the state of cards while forcing you to manipulate them and, and swap things out. And the fact that you need to perform actions before your turn is over keeps the game state changing. Uh, mm. in ways that you have to try and predict, but can't always. Yeah, that right there is a really strong concept. Just I, I've seen a lot of games stagnate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I love I love just hearing this because I've I've mentioned in the past that cards are dice with memory. Yes, this is <laughs> just using cards as memory. This is really yes. fascinating. Look, game state memory—they are remembering all the the fiddly stuff, so the players can try to interact with that. Mm-hmm. It's offloading information onto physical cards, and then making the fact that they are on physical cards part of how you control who has what information. It's exactly. Stuff. So, last year uh, was my first year at IndieCade, and I met up with these uh, fine folks from Cardboard Fortress. Um, like, at the end of the day, we were in, like, a little cafe area sitting around. They said, hey, let's, let's see what you're working on. Um, and they had, like, little index cards with, you know, Sharpie-drawn colors on them. To demonstrate the game. And we were like, this is very neat. I like it. Today they came, or I say today, <laughs> uh, this year they came with a fully printed set of double-sided cards, Ooh. uh, custom-made box to hold the in- entire game. <laughs> uh, fabulous to see. Like, that's, that's the other great thing. I get to 
follow up on a developer and see how their game has progressed and and be able to engage with that. And as like a a regular person, a regular lover of games, that is extremely valuable to me. Um as a as a ludologist. A ludologist, <laughs> yes. Uh, we, we'll get. Oh, to- I see. But if I use the word proprioception, I'm making up words. Because <laughs> it sounds like a penis disease. We'll we'll get to ludology <laughs> later uh, when I start talking about the panels because that gets. I am a ludologist. Oh my. <laughs> Same. Uh, so yeah, just just catching up with people. Also at um, sort of the floor area where people you know commonly congregate, where there's no panels or. The exhibits upstairs. Um, they there was actually a presence from Sony showing off some of their games that are now on the PlayStation, um, hmm. such as Earth Knight. Um, I remember uh, uh, Rami Ismail from Vlambeer was there to talk, but I don't think Nuclear Throne was on display. Um, Why is that game early access? Uh, because he's still working on uh, it. Yeah, <laughs> that's he's still tuning it. That's that's. <laughs> How they do? <laughs> it's more complete than several AAA titles that have come out. To be fair, though, that's a good time to have it be early access if it's basically finished, but uh, they're just tuning it. Fair enough. Like as opposed to the early yep. access where uh, it's like half finished and people are going to form a negative opinion of it yeah. before it's actually even launched. And during, say actually too much. During one of his talks, uh, uh, he was actually mentioning a little bit of the development of the game and how most of the enemies in the game, uh, they never named. They are all hmm. create like all of the names are created by the community surrounding the game. Uh, huh. And they, they really? listen to them very closely um, for ideas and improvements. So that is how early access is supposed to work, <laughs> as yeah. far as I know. So, oh, hang on, hang on, shock, horror! Something Raimi is associated with is doing an existing thing that we are all kind of got a negative opinion of, but they're doing it well. Here is here is here is Luftrausers. Here yes. is Nuclear Throne. Here is so much of the stuff that uh, that Devolver, uh, sorry, that that, um, that Vlambeer touch is fascinatingly. Since well, it executes on the things that we don't expect it to do well. Mm-hmm. Well, like with early access, there's this general mentality of yeah, well, it's an early access title, so you can kind of expect it to not be good, or that you can kind of expect the devs to be a bit shitty about it, or they will abandon it eventually. But not so. Uh, in addition to to Sony showing, Nintendo uh, was a recent ad this year. Um, well, they've got Shovel Knight to talk about, don't they? <laughs> uh, they did actually did not have Shovel Knight on display. Um, huh. They were showing off uh, some of their indie games on the Wii U and th- uh, the new 3DS. Um, ah. The one that uh, I was most interested in was um, uh, Budget Space Adventures, where you are flying a... These are three things I really like, so go on. It, it, <laughs> it's it's a, a sort of 2D... Um, the interface is similar to to um, uh, what's the game Aquaria, where it's sort of two D explory type thing. Uh, except oh, affordable space adventure. Affordable space adventure. Thank you. Uh, you you <laughs> fly around in a uh, a, f- a very affordable uh, spacecraft, which does not have enough power to run all of its systems at once. Uh, so you must carefully. Oh, no, I'm having. 
FTL flashbacks. So you must, you must. <laughs> I'm having, I'm having space team. I, I'm having space team flashbacks. Don't forget to bump the mouse. You, you must very carefully on your uh, Wii U controller um, allocate power into things like your thrusters or your stabilizer, so that you can fly both straight and forward at all. Uh, Holy crap! So you're using the gamepad like a computer yes. uh, panel interface? Yes. Nice. Nice use of a largely pointless peripheral. Allocate power to the thrusters is my OkCupid okay profile name. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny, because I'm going to mention your other OkCupid okay profile name. Holy crap, this looks gorgeous! Yes. It's, it's a pretty good-looking game. It's... Uh, the fact that you can't have your power in your stabilizers at all times means your ship is rickety as heck. <laughs> but that's part I of the charm. It. So you're flying the Bebop. Uh, nah. You're flying the Bebop if it if like one of its engines was out at all times. And it was just kind of... Like it's like a much more dynamic version of Galaxy Trucker, the image of this future where we're still kicking around with ramshackle bits that don't quite work. I like it. I like you, it a lot. You say that, but your your main engine is diesel-powered and generates a lot of noise <laughs> and giant plumes of smoke. Uh, which And you've got things that are going to kind of try and beat you up based on hearing you, right? Yes, there, there are enemies which will detect you based on sound, uh, I think based on heat as well, I, because your electric engine generates <laughs> a lot of heat if it's overused. Uh, huh. So, yeah. Very creative. That's that's on uh, Nintendo Wii U. Uh, right. So, were there, I, I, I would say, are there any things that really stood out to you at IndieCade, but come to think of it, pretty much all of it seems to have. <laughs> I mean, you're trying to condense three days into... About an hour. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, so, so in addition to those, there was just open floor, which uh, any developers could sign up for ahead of time to get, like, an hour slot to show off their game. Anybody could do this. And so there were amazing projects constantly cycling in with developers giving live demonstrations. Um, you could spend days just watching and cycling through all of these games. Uh, you get student projects. You get uh, seasoned developers striking it out on their own. Uh, amazing. Um, we saw a game that uh, you play as a, a rabbit. Ooh. A mobile device. A mobile device game uh, with a gyroscope sensor. Um, sort of like an endless runner game where you're a rabbit trying to find another rabbit so you can repopulate the species. And uh, in this case quote-unquote repopulate the species means turn into a katamari ball so you can roll over wolves. What? I don't... Of course. Bunny love. (laughs) That's the name of the game. Check it out. (laughs) We're gonna have a lot of links in this description. Yes, because there's so much! Uh, I got to play a a student project, a physical game, called Candy Crusher, which is played with candy. Um, <laughs> where you put what, really like yeah. actual candy. Yes, so so you <laughs> you take turns uh, with with your opponent placing candy, having it fall down on a grid. Then on your turn, you may either swap two pieces of adjacent candy or take a hammer and smash a piece down to lock it in place. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> and then you then you find out who has the highest combo score. <laughs> what? <laughs> this is great. Wait, wait. Why use a hammer? You you could just eat. Well, because it's much more fun <laughs> to smash things with hammers. 
I would argue, like, there are a lot of things that are less fun than smashing things with hammers, but eating sweets is not one of them. I would... Fox, what if, what, what if after the game, after the game, Fox, whoever wins gets to eat the candy? Okay. Well, it's all smashed, so... <laughs> no, so... see? There is a proper design flaw here. Though this does remind me that... This does remind me of one concept project we had for making throwaway gaming miniatures that were gummies. Yeah. Yep. Anyway. Do an uh, online board game jam. Like, you yep. know, not, not you have to be producing it online, but, you you know, keep people updated and share what you're doing. And... Yeah. I, I'm, a, I'm a big advocate for physical media and low-end, low-digital um, card uh, game design, because I've encountered so many people who say, I have an idea for a game, but I can't program, I can't make art assets, I can't draw, I can't, mm-hmm. etc. And it's like, get a bunch of blank business cards <laughs> and start scribbling on them. This is a good yep. way to defocus yourself from the the graphical elements that people, you know, tend to overvalue with video games. <laughs> I love cute graphics, but you know, that that's not what games are about. Okay. Um I'll tell you about uh what was up uh upstairs at the at the top floor. They actually uh in conjunction with the the museum, uh set up several games of constructed over, you know, the past years or so, um, to demonstrate. And this year's theme for the exhibit, and most of the panels as well, was love and rejection. Um, Fitting, since it was over the Valentine's Day. Exactly! I loved it! So, uh, games that I saw there, and I played with uh, my girlfriend, uh, who I took there, it's our Valentine's Day tradition at this point. Uh, Nice. Sweet. We played Realistic Kissing Simulator, uh, which is <laughs> oh, no. a fascinating game of trying not to stick your tongue in your partner's eyeball. Um, <laughs> Unless they like that sort Unless, of thing. You, it, Immediately reminded of Consentical. Consentical oh. was there, and it was amazing. Hey! It is a finely crafted game <laughs> about love and sex between a human and a tentacle alien. Um, yeah, that is a lot of fun, and I highly recommend it. Um, it's not out yet, I don't think. But again, low end, low tech, high concept. <laughs> the the mechanism that we have to try and communicate, right? Yeah, yes. It's where well, you have to try and build up reserves of trust. Yep, and still being able to confirm and deny consent levels and whatnot. It's oh, really interesting. Uh, what's what's the game that is uh, where you all play cavemen and you can only communicate with grunting or drawings? Uh, that, was a, that was a super... Indir- uh, Ugtect is the board game version of it. Where the, yeah, this one's yep. just like a role-playing game. This one's game. a role-playing game. It's called Secret of Fire. Right. Ah, okay. And, it, and in Secret of Fire is... Weirdly, it's one of those things that comes from that sinkhole of terrible humanity... Uh, 4chan's TG board, which was part of... They had a game jam, and it was one day to make a role-playing game that you distribute as a PDF. And the game they came up with was that one. That's lovely. Even 4chan can produce some excellent things. They also produced Everyone is Jake. That's when we were all controlling the one character. Yeah, everyone is playing a different... Those are both very good ideas. They're... Well... (laughs) I, I I don't want to talk about... I, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to talk about Everyone is Jake because the people behind it are apparently complete assholes Aww. about mental difficulties, but the game itself is certainly an interesting and weird concept. Is that Everyone is like John? Can, everyone is John. Everyone is John. Yes. Sorry, yes. Let's see. What else What else did we play? We played um, Darkroom Sex Game, 
which was fascinating, that used a PlayStation Move controller. Uh, it is a game for one or two players using a PlayStation Move controller. Um, 1980s photography puns, woo! Dear God, I thought you were just gearing up to say it was your OK Cupid profile name. <laughs> <laughs> but go on, you uses the PlayStation Move controller. Yes, uh, completely, completely black screen, uh, with a voiceover <laughs> that tells you um, just how to start the game. From there, you need to figure out what the heck you're doing, which is a lot like having sex in a dark room. It, it involves trying to find the correct motion that you need to, to perform to get a ooh from you or your partner, um, and trying not to do the incorrect motion, which causes uh, a bit of a buzz. Um, it's like the Starship Demray, but yes. with sex. It, it, it is really great. I, I suggest that one as well. <laughs> Very strong concept for your uh, low low creative resources. Yes. Yeah. Passive game concept. <laughs> uh, no, no, we're not going to do textures or interfaces. Uh, no, that shit's for sissies. Let's see, what else is... There was How Do You Do It, which is on Steam now. That is a fascinating little game. Uh, Gone Home was on display. Um, what else? Reprogram uh, was a game that... Um, my girlfriend played, and it touched her significantly. Um, like, very touching game for her, so recommended there. Um, there were also some games that didn't quite fit within Love and Rejection, um, uh, within galleries for what they called Horizons, and also Gesture, um, using sort of new things with the motion controls. Um, there was Fracto SC on display on a, a big projector. It was very popular. Mm -hmm. um, it's a good one. Uh, Hack and Slash had a little display. Keep Talking and Nobody Explodes is an excellent little uh, Oculus <laughs> Rift game. Is that exactly what it sounds like? Uh, uh, Keep Talking and Nobody Explodes is a cooperative game for two players. Uh, one person has the Oculus Rift on and is looking and manipulating a bomb that is ticking. Uh, the other person, meant to be played in a room so that they can't see the, the device, uh, has the manual for the bomb. Uh, for all bombs, in fact. Uh, all bombs. So, so you have to find the right bomb. You have to find, have the, to right find the right bomb so that you can disarm in a proper way. Very fascinating. Uh, didn't get to play it, but it looked amazing. Very uh, strangely, that reminds me of Two Rooms and a Boom. Yes. Yes, in fact. Uh, which is another great idea uh, that I have not played. <laughs> See, I thought it was going to be more along the lines of, like, literally it, it sensed whether or not you were talking. And Oh, that reminds me of an indie game I previewed at um, one of the, the international... IGDA, um, mm -hmm. one of the events they had here, which was first-person shouter, which is exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> you have to scream into your microphone to destroy bullies at school. Interesting. There's, there's an early access game on Steam, which I, I sadly have my doubts about, but it was apparently a Hexen-like game, but there's no shoot button. You have to chant spells to make the character... Ooh, yes. Very I like interesting. That. Yeah, anyway. Uh, yeah, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt you there. Yeah, so th there was a, a, a whole lot of games on display. Very good ones. Last year, um, oh man, last year, <laughs> there was more different, uh, there was a different theme for the games. I remember they had um, Dog Eat Dog on display, which is a game I am terrified oh. of playing. Yeah. You Dog know. Eat Dog. That better not be exactly what it sounds no, like. No, Dog Eat Dog is about colonialism. Oh, Dog it's e still bad, but much less. 
there is there is an excellent article on it from uh, the Shut Up and Sit Down folks. Brendan, who's Irish, yes. did this amazing. I I was swapping it around uh, with friends a little while ago. It is a very heavy game. It is depressing, but mm-hmm. it is also kind of incredible. Brendan recommended that teachers play it with students. Wow. Yep. <laughs> I'm guessing not like your sister's class. It sounds like something that back when I was reading for Indie Haven uh, that they, they describe as a gem game. Yeah. Well, <laughs> look, uh, cent- central to the premise Intriguing, of, bleak as fuck. Central to the premise of Dog Eat Dog is one player who, it, it, the game flat out says, which player has the most money? <laughs> All right, that player is <laughs> the colonialists. That player is the colonizing force. Everyone else is natives. Ah, so you and it's, I would always be good guys. The yeah, colonists... <laughs> can't do anything wrong. They don't lose anything. At best, they draw oh, or tie. Shit. And every time a conflict oh happens God. where the colon- where the colonist is involved, a new rule gets added to prevent that conflict from happening again. Oh. The only oh. way to win this game is for the colonized people to eventually build up this body of rules and rituals to just desperately try and appease the colonist and get them to leave. Wow. Which says a lot. <laughs> oh, that is why I am terrified of playing that game. It is so important. <laughs> dog, doggy Dog is bleak, dark, and very, very much worth your time to look into. Yes. And so that was just the games that were uh, on the exhibit. There was also the panels, uh, and they were amazing. And, of course, I you can't go to all of them, which is... a. Uh, uh, <laughs> Serious design flaw. There were so many that I missed that I that I wanted to see. So mostly I focused on um, topics that were interesting me at the time, which was a lot about diversity. Um, I went to a panel uh, called um, "Staying in Tune," uh, which was about people who created a game about consent—a game to not just teach consent but explore it. They are at Intune Game. Uh, on Twitter. They're Canadian developers. It's a, a physical game where you need to actually discuss out with your partner the types of moves that you're going to do. And there needs to be skin-to-skin contact for these moves to happen. Um, it could be as simple as, like, make a pose doing a high five, or two butts pressing up against each other. And it's about discussing, are you okay with this? Can we do this in a different way? Do you want to just back off? There are... Yes. I I was going to briefly make a joke about that, and then I realized how quickly what you were describing made me feel uncomfortable. That's really interesting. Yeah. The the idea that they brought up... The idea that they brought up was that we so rarely uh, are able to talk about consent. What consent actually means... Uh, so instead of just having a discussion of consent, create a, a way to practice it. A demonstration of consent. So that was interesting. This, that was this interests the f- me particularly because it ties back to a discussion we've had on this podcast earlier in romances and video games. Yes. when Where the ludic system of the game becomes evident, the romantic element of the game becomes sublimated. In this yep. case, this is making... The conversation about consent itself a ludic system. Exactly. That's very interesting. 
that was actually... that was the first panel. Wow. <laughs> of three days. It's leading me to uh, sort of theorize right now, thinking about it, that it may be a really reliable way to know whether you have a good game mechanic or not if you would recommend a basic version of it as something that teachers should play with their students. Yeah, uh, that was actually their plan, was to use this to teach consent in schools. Um, they have not brought it outside of Canada just yet. They have plans to take it to Puerto Rico, eventually Europe, um, and they want to explore different cultures' consent systems because they are very different very than cool. in North America. Yeah, a lot of cultures are like just very not big on touching in the first place. Huh? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Different different cultural landscapes for different rules. Yeah. Right. Um. So I think I'll I'll quickly go through just the highlights. I, I took pages and pages of notes on all of these. <laughs> so I'll I'll just quickly go through the the. The panels I was on across the three days. Um, the one I was really excited about, Subverting Toxic Let's Play Culture. Um, ah. The the speaker of that was uh, Matt Albright, um, who actually did research and analysis of Achievement Hunter uh, and their diversity, or lack thereof because of their content, versus PewDiePie, who actually instituted a change in his content style, i.e. removing jokes involving rape, um, and saw a dramatic increase in the number of female viewers. Um, uh-huh. And uh, he created his own Let's Play, uh, that that's Matt Albright, the speaker, um, and devised a number of different policies and ideas that you could use to um, create a more diverse community within Let's Play. Um, very fascinating. Next panel I went to was Initiate Fuck Plan. Initiate Fuck Plan, you say? <laughs> yes, uh, that was... Jeb, a... why are these people taking all of your OK Cupid profile names? <laughs> I should be charging for these. Uh, that was an excellent panel talking about intimacy in video games. Uh, continuing the theme, of course. Various games that, that bring up intimacy and how you can actually use intimacy in your game. Um, so there's both, like, talks about, you know, design research, uh, culture research, but also practical things and tips that you can use for designers. So that's, that's great. Um, I'm leaving that one for last. Uh, I, um... skip, like, five pages. Um... Th- this, in- this involves stuff like Mass Effect-style um, romance. Uh, yeah, well, mostly in terms of how they're doing it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that... In in that game, intimacy is, like you said, it's... Systematized. Systematized. And that is not how intimacy works. Not really. Uh, but then you think of something like Gone Home, where because you're in a state where you are... You're playing a character who belongs here. And they found that in testing Gone Home, that you could pick up objects... Um, to examine them. People... Oh, this is about how players put them back? Exactly. They had intimacy with their location. They wanted to be able to just put the items back where they belonged because they had a connection to this place. And I remember that they instituted a system that let you put items back exactly the way they were if exactly. you wanted to. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it uh, yeah, Jeff? reminds me of uh, Life is Strange, which I hope more people have played since I last talked about it. Yes. Uh, life is... 
Life Life is Strange has some incredibly, truly intimate moments in it, uh, both between Chloe and Max and uh, Chloe and Max talking about. I can't remember the other girls. <laughs> But the, the the relationships between between the three of them are between between the dialogue and how the the, the game cine, cinematographically con, conveys the environments around the girls is touching and it's small and close and warm and really everyone should just go play Life is Strange. <laughs> mm-hmm. Intimacy is often you, intimacy in video games is often connected. <laughs> to sex when really it should be connected to atmosphere. Yes. Like, uh, just from a cinema- cinematographic uh, standpoint, uh, Chloe's room in Life is Strange has a, a, a slanted, as a sloping ceiling, so it draws everything else in just a little bit closer to you. Hmm. hmm. That's very clever. I do actually know a thing or two about what I'm talking about, people. <laughs> <laughs> Well, a sloping roof to begin with has a certain kind of, mm, what, quaintness, coziness? Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, let's see, what else? Um, there was a panel on self-publishing for the PlayStation, which mostly amounted to uh, talk to people. They actually have people, Sony has people <laughs> on Twitter who you can talk to for, hi, I'm an indie developer, talk to me. We can publish That's a game. Cool. Uh there was a panel on curating for diversity, which basically gave a 12-step plan for how to make your community more diverse and inclusive, which I wrote down as much as I could, and I have been taking that back to my own communities uh, to try and and work with those um, and, and see where we can get with that. Uh, there was an excellent talk called uh, Who Gets to Play on the Leisure Gap, uh, the fact that mm-hmm. women have less time and less uh, uh, consistent... Oh, what's the word? Not, not consistent. Take your time. Uh, continuous blocks of time to oh, spend on right. leisure. So they have less time and less time continuous to blocks of time. little bits during the day. Exactly. Uh, because women, even now, tend to do more what's called second shift work, which is... Uh, Tasks that you do not get paid for, but are necessary, such as mm-hmm. cooking meals, or uh, repairing your car, or doing the dishes. Um, and they found, uh, through this research, that that is the reason why, because women have less time to spend on all leisure, it means that they have, relatedly, less time to spend on video games, and because it's less continuous blocks to spend on video games. They tend to shy away from PC games or console games. And because of this, uh, because of both of these conditions, it means that, uh, one, they have less opportunity to build up the necessary skill, which is valued within gamer society at large, and less opportunity to build up the literacy that is needed to be considered for academic circles as well. So, a Once thing again, to be aware of. Yeah, that second one is really surprising. Once again, we hose women. Oh, yes! Damn it. Uh, and, and it's, it was more meant to, to bring up these facts and, like, all of the data. Um, the speaker of that was, uh, Margaret Moser. 
who was a assistant professor in interactive media and games division at the USC uh, School of Cinematic Arts. Um, uh, uh, presented all of this and basically wanted to start a discussion on, um, one, how we can change the system of uh, leisure time, which is more of a societal thing that would need to be changed, but also consider how to design games that work within that smaller and less, uh, like, shorter play sessions. This uh, reminds me of something Jeb has touched on in the past, where Dark Souls' lack of a pause button is an accessibility issue. It is, yes. Well, it's also a mood issue, but yeah, I mean, that's that's the point. They chose to do something for the sake of gameplay and tension and whatnot that poses. Is also... yeah. I mean, that's true of a well, lot it's... of things that get used to create mood in video games, like whether you have voice acting or text or mm-hmm. what your lighting is like or, you know, any number of these mm-hmm. things that are uh, in a... in an unambiguously abled setting... Yeah. Uh, just stylistic choices, but can have ramifications. We real ramifications, yeah. Yep. Uh, well, like like I often say, like difficulty in general is an accessibility issue. True. Yeah. yeah. Very true. I will. I will rate. I will. I will rave about Dragon's Dogma. Dragon's Dogma has difficulty settings. It is not an easy game, but it has difficulty settings. It's <laughs> another reason that City of Heroes was a fantastic MMO. It was. Oh my. The highlight for the first day was the closing uh, uh, presentation, the Great Game Design Debate. Mm-hmm. Allow me to pitch this to you. Lee Alexander is the moderator for a debate mm-hmm. between Maddie Bryce, Naomi Clark, Mohini Dutta, and Nick Fortungo, talking about is there a difference between a game's mechanic and its content? Is there a place I can go on YouTube and watch this? I wish! I don't know if they recorded it, but oh my god, it was fantastic. Damn, that was going to be my next question. Like, did they record all these panels and shit? To make it even better, the first thing Lee Alexander did as as moderator was introduce everyone and then say, The F word is banned. Oh. You are not. <laughs> you are not allowed in your arguments to use the word... Formalism. Fun. Oh, ah, <laughs> formalism. 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 Well, there was Is that a whole. What th- you would use? There was a yeah, whole the- thing going on at the time about formalism. It was ah. silly. <laughs> so I have over. Uh, yeah, I've got over five pages of notes on this debate alone. <laughs> um, Sorry. Just writing down as much as I can from each person's argument, each person's response, each person's response to responses. Uh, it was fantastic! Uh, the, the four, uh, arguments was that, uh, um, there was, uh, Maddie, Maddie's, uh, argument was more, um, we need to consider a new approach to discussing and critiquing games. To understanding games because the existing systems can be used to harm the medium as a whole. Uh, people have used them to, to tear apart experiences and, and analyze individual parts and use that to uh, devalue the entire experience. Um, uh, so that to for the betterment of the medium, we need to discard those ideas and come up with a new method. Um, 
Mohatmi uh, was discussing how we need to consider the tools that we use today, separating them from what we use to study and understand a game and what we use to uh, critique a game. Uh, part, of both of, part of both of those, would, I assume, stem from the fact that uh, both both those points and Maddie's points would stem from that a lot of our critique around gaming as a medium is focused around the the same the same sort of theory that we use to critique cinema and television exactly yes instead of being um, something of our own it's borrowed from this other medium because that's all we have so far exactly uh exactly that um Mahatmi also throughout the debate brought up very intriguing and and just fascinating points about how the methods that we use to dissect games and understand core mechanics and pass along the ideas of mechanics is an inherently political system that uh, game developers in India do not have access to the same knowledge base that developers in North America do. And that, that the new thoughts are not being transmitted. They're not being free to everyone. And this is not ideal for the development of the entire medium across the entire globe. Um, uh, uh, Nick, uh, on the debate, was uh, really interested in understanding mechanical aspects and, and logical aspects and, and was arguing that the logical interactions of a game were the most core, that you could remove the aesthetic components of games, that uh, you even see people playing uh, Counter-Strike or StarCraft with lowered graphical settings so that they have a... Exactly, so that they have a more direct access to the game's mechanics, and that the logic of a game, the mechanics of the game, can be used to create art. Using mechanics of a game to create art, I'm reminded of something I was talking with Talon about about two hours ago. We were talking about uh, Super Hot and Mighty Tactical Shooter, which are both uh, respectively, uh, well, Super Hot is a first-person shooter where time only moves when you do, and uh, Mighty Tactical Shooter is a Mighty Tactical Shooter is a turn-based shmup. In both cases, they take an established genre and they transform mechanics, and in the process, almost completely transform the type of game they are. Ah. Um, Super Hot does not. If you've played much to do with FPSs, especially FPSs in the gun era, where most weapons enemies fire at you are hit-scan weapons and instantly hit. Those games tend to be about uh, pop out of cover, pop into cover. They tend to be more about reaction and timing. Whereas Super Hot, because every bullet's path is project protracted and you can plan ahead and you can see where it's going to go, it changes what was a, a, a frantic timing-based thing to instead a very thoughtful, slow puzzle mm-hmm. without ever really changing what we consider the framing device, which is you are a person with a gun being shot at by other people with guns. And that... But then we tied... Go oh, sorry. <laughs> the, that, is, that was an excellent jumping-off point that uh, Naomi brought up, 
is that when we go in to examine a mechanic or examine an aesthetic, she likened it to performing surgery on a game, that you are using the tools. The tools that we use to examine these pieces are scalpels, that we are cutting into the game to remove these pieces. And when we do, they have the bloody bits of viscera still attached to them that is the mm -hmm. original context of the mechanic, of the aesthetic. When you create a, a first-person shooter, even if it is not a game where you are shooting, it is still within the context of the original first-person shooters. Upstairs on the exhibit floor, they had Wolfenstein 3D set up next to Super 3D Noah's Ark. Nice. Nice. Demonstrating this exact thing perfectly. Super 3D Noah's Ark is not a violent game, but it is expressed through the language of a violent game. I have to say, of all the things I expected us to do callbacks to in podcast episodes, I yeah. really <laughs> didn't expect Super, Mar Super Noah's Ark 3D. Right? Consistent I, branding. That, that genuinely stuns me. So the idea that even when you take a mechanic away, even when you take a tool away, it retains some of the original context. Hmm. Well, that still felt like a violent game, and that's why it's creepy. Exactly. You um, need to be able to consider this. You can't simply wash it away, but you can examine it, you can study it, but study where it was placed within the greater whole as well as the individual piece. A holistic approach is what most of the panelists were actually looking for. So, can any of you think of an example, just while we're on the subject, of a game that does basically what Super Noah's Ark did, but in a, a useful, thoughtful fashion where they were taking the nature of the mechanic and converting the style or the the platform to something that had something to say about that? Portal? There must be games like this, I just can't bring one to mind. Portal's not a bad suggestion. Well, yeah. Um... I can also think of a non-game example of something very similar to this this mm -hmm. critical discussion you're describing. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a weird thing, but Thai, the language. Thai is one of the most complicated writing sorry, most complicated writing systems in the world. Not hard to understand or hard to um, lead, just read, just the levels of complexity involved in it are very deep. Where when the writing system was codified, one of the things that was important was they wanted to be able to maintain the way that an earlier religious text was written in a different language. Which means Thai has now redundant letters whose only purpose is to say, if I was in a different language, I would be that language's letter. But you pronounce me like this letter. So they have, for example... Uh, this is, this but is they don't not, just use the character from the other language. No, they have their own character. They have their own character for it. Um, and, and to use a, a, a chunky English metaphor, it would be like if there were four or five different versions of the letter T. Not the letter, the letter T, but the, the phoneme T. Um, like, we, in English, we already do things. Like, we actually have umlauted U's in English. Say, this is like occasionally we, we concede to using an umlaut or the the merged ae from greek i don't know what that character is yeah um we have those in our language thai has a bedrock to the whole thing and there's a whole bunch of other stuff that makes thai complicated as well it would almost be more useful if they were like that because we like we use them interchangeably with the normal characters which is why we get things mispronounced all the time and uh, brutal legend yeah a lack of understanding of 
the difference between one word and another for exactly this reason. The upshot of this super holistic approach to the written language means that modern Thai, as a spoken language, it has evolved over 900 years about as much as any language has. Yeah. But written Thai, people now learning to read in Thailand can go to ruins and old temples that are literally centuries old and there are texts on the walls and texts on tablets that they can read perfectly. They <laughs> they effectively have a historical guide of how to read 900 years ago in every written piece. So this, you're... Sorry? This level of historical context for everything in the language. When you take that to criticism, it becomes even harder. But on the other hand, we only have 60-odd years of video games to do that with. But then we have a couple of thousand year of games as well so so you're uh, saying the mechanics themselves are almost like a language because of the implications and the the feelings that they carry with them yeah at the risk of using one of those terms it's going to get jeb to look at me sideways oh here we go what is what is this week's term it's a matter of ludic literacy that's not a word <laughs> that's two words oh it's two exactly yeah, I, I, yeah it's two words <laughs> <laughs> another example of what uh fox asked asked at first uh uh Two games, uh, always sometimes monsters, and to the moon. Oh, yeah. Use the trappings and mechanics of Japanese-style role-playing games in order to express their story in a very modern Western sense. Yep. Without there are going effectively point-click adventure games that pretend to be JRPGs. Right. So, what's the difference there? What is it they're doing that doesn't fit in with? Uh... They'll reference stats increasing and equipment levels and whatnot that have no impact, but are just there to inform the player of a character's perception of a statistic increasing. Oh, okay. Yeah. That is it's, kind of interesting. I highly suggest to the playing... To a weird game. I highly suggest playing Always Sometimes Monsters. Even if only... The, even if the name is frustrating to say. <laughs> That's a wonderful name, though. I like it that is an excellent name, and it accurately reflects the game incredibly well. But yeah, th- this is um, one of the, the cruxes of the counterpoints that kept coming up, was that... Um, a mechanic still exists in the context where it was used before. That, um, because it's an adventure game, using the trappings and, and, and mechanics of the RPG, there is still the, the thought, the, the politics, the memory, uh, the language of the RPG used within the adventure game. But what if you don't have those? Like, what if you've never Japanese-style role-playing games? that is the problem when you transcend... That is the political problem that happens when you transcend these things. Uh, an example that they brought up is that if you were to go to... If you were to bring a game to uh, a different country, would they have a concept of, say, cyberpunk? Mm-hmm. Cyberpunk is a genre that is extremely political in that it exists only in the context of understanding high technology and and high politics and high economics. And economic disparity. Exactly. It's all punk, right? I mean, it's all fundamentally about that contrast of two things which are, you know, can't be divorced from a world setting kind of thing. Further to that, cyberpunk grows from noir. Yes. If you don't have noir, cyberpunk has fewer trappings to draw upon. This, this contextualization, to use an, to use a game example, Ikaruga, when it came to the yes. West, was the only bullet hell. And you had players in the West looking at this game going, what the hell is this? We don't even, 
have the mental space to grok what Ikaruga is. It's like a top-down shooter, but it's so unforgiving and it's so hard to play and how do you even approach a game like this? Whereas Ikaruga is part of a long, iterative sequence of types of games in Japan. So when we get video of people in Ikaruga playing what two different games of Ikaruga at once, one in one controller in each hand, perfectly. Mm-hmm. To us in the West at the time, it was like this is this is clearly Jeez. demon magic. We don't know how this can possibly is happen. Ikaruga the Dreamcast one. Ikaruga is the yeah, yeah, it's the Dreamcast one with color swapping. I was saying it's hacks. There were arcade bullet hells before that point. We had top-down shooters, but remember this is the period when Japan was doing things like deliberately modding their games to be easier for American audiences. I mean, you'll have to forgive me because I'm not... uh, Top-down shooters has never been a genre I could play very well, and bullet hells have always been completely beyond me. The the thing Mm -hmm. to think about is that top-down shooters, the way that we get designed and played in the West, are very much... A matter of a punitive approach, in that you know you get hit, but you can you can recover from being hit. There is some degree of forgiveness, give right. and take. There is a degree of success. Whereas a bullet hell game is effectively a moving maze. Thomas Grip, who you might know as one of the co-founders of Frictional Games, uh, the makers of Penumbra and Amnesia, gave a keynote on uh, called "Playing a Story: How Narrative and Gameplay Can Become One and the Same." And in that talk, he described uh, basically his process of discovering the four-layer approach to game design, um, which is layering uh, the player's mental model, which is how we, in our heads, perceive a state. Uh, the narrative background, which is all of the elements of narrative that you add um, to the story. The narrative goal, which is the point you're trying to make, the thing that you want the player to do, and then the gameplay itself, which is all of the systems that are layered on top of that, and how you build a game using this sort of model, and uh, using that approach for their new game, which will be coming out. Uh, and having played Amnesia and not been completely impressed by it, <laughs> I can definitely see the advancements that he has made uh, in, in in the demonstrations that he gave. So, sorry, the, it seems off-topic, but the, no, that, no, that is exactly what it was... Um, like, no, that, that whole talk was about that. So... so. No, that, seems, that seems fine. I mean, um, Amnesia, for me, was a game that asks you to meet it more than halfway. So if you're in... Yes. So if you're a horror person, if you like horror, if you can get yourself into that mental mode of, I'm going to be scared... The amnesia is amazing. It's just straight into the vein. But in, yes. in my case, it didn't click. In your case, you were more scared by, say, System Shock 2? Yeah, yeah. I I don't know. It's just because, for me, the things that Amnesia talked about didn't scare me deeply. They didn't unsettle me. Right, um, right. And Amnesia was a game about telling a story. Yeah. Um, that, that, is, that is what uh, Thomas Grip was, was sort of talking about, was how to tell a story through games. Story games, as he would call it. And more specifically, how to create horror, which is a very primitive emotion, from games. Um, Amnesia is a game that, at the very beginning, asks you to enter the magic circle. Yeah. It says, put on headphones, turn the lights down, create an immersive environment for yourself... Yep. And focus on being immersed in the system. 
hence asking you to meet it more than halfway. On the exactly. other hand, Eversion... Yes. Eversion doesn't tell you what it's going to do, and it scared the shit out of me. So, <laughs> and I don't know. That is, and, and that's that's what I'm saying, is what I see him having developed with this, this four-layer approach, is that understanding that inside people's minds, you are already creating the game. Yeah. You are already understanding how things are being played out. Um... What uh, he said is that the narrative exists on the same level as the mental model. That you are creating the story within your mind, within your mind space. When you're playing, say, Thief, not the fourth, but Thief, and you see a guard for the very first time, your mental model is thinking, there is a person here. Can they see me? Where can they see? Where can I hide? What sort of actions can I take in this situation? You are open. You are immersing yourself inside the narrative that exists purely within your mind. There's a sense of verisimilitude. Yes. However, as players play the game more, and they understand eventually that said guard is merely a collection of scripts, either voice scripts or patrol routes... They don't see that as a person to avoid. They see that as a game object to avoid. Once again, when the ludic system takes prominence. Exactly. And he said be... that in the... Sorry. Oh. No, go, go for it. Go. I was going to say, that would have right. to be strongly tied to the kind of player you were as well. Because, I mean, I am the kind of person who, even when I can see the mechanics underneath something, I enjoy indulging the idea that it's... You know, that's a person. Yeah, I, I well, like. I, I'm, I'm the kind of person who likes just breaking the the loop system. Yeah, that's why <laughs> exactly. Final Fantasy VIII is actually a game I enjoy. <laughs> you know, and, you see, know what game are, is really they, good for um, creating a sensation of breaking the loop system, Jeb? Mega Man, Bad Rats. <laughs> <laughs> when, when it breaks itself, I don't. <laughs> breaking. Well, there's also Fire Emblem we could mention. <laughs> True. Which okay, is a, we, not, a, we hit all the bases, right? Yeah, we've pretty much done the episode now. We're, we're packing in. <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. Go on, go on. This is genuinely okay, interesting. Okay, so, yeah, so, um, even between the, the, the commenters here on this fine podcast, uh, you see different mental models that are taking place. Some people prefer to try and keep that mental model. Other people's want you know, it to become systems. But if you're trying to tell a story in your game, you need to keep the story inside the mental model. You need to stop or prevent, in some way, the pieces of your game from becoming pieces of your game within people's minds. Uh, and over the years, what we have done to this is create more complex systems. You have guards with more audio lines that they can cycle through. You have more complex AI that they will follow uh, to try and search you out or break up their patterns. The problem with this is that while it delays the mental model breaking down, it doesn't stop it. And it makes it more and jarring when it breaks down. It can make it more jarring because it's a halt, more complicated halt, criminal system. Scum. <laughs> it criminal scum. But... It creates an extra level of the uncanny valley, and in so doing exactly. creates ludonarrative dissonance, and ah, 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 I'm drowning in pretentious... <laughs> uh, no, not dissonance! <laughs> Suddenly not, all the buzzwords! Okay. I'm going to explode into so, a leviathan of buzzwords, flailing randomly at things. Produsage! Vanishment! That's how, 
See, I, I'm just going to say fuck all through the podcast, but we'll censor every time Talon uses a buzzword. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want Rated to do these F complex for systems... <laughs> if you want to do these complex systems well, uh, you need to devote a lot of resources and development time into doing that, which is prohibitive in some cases. For anyone across anyone who develops games, AAA can't do it right half the time. Indie gamers yeah. don't have the resources to try. And and, um, and the worst thing is that when you continue when you continue to chase the idea of make the system more complicated, you only multiply the amount of work you have to do. <laughs> yeah, there is no foreseeable a diminishing return of gain. This would be this would be a form of methodolatry where we are chasing uh, a particular. Doing it again. That's not a word. <laughs> That, now you know how much stuff I wind up cutting. Um, but, but in all seriousness, it would be a form of methodology where pursuing the way things are done has become a goal unto itself rather than consider why we do things that way and whether or not those exactly. ways are appropriate. I'm reminded, and, of, and so, uh, I'm reminded of hearing a story about, uh, about, about a year ago the, during development, during, earlier on in the development of uh, Mike Bickle's volume. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. uh, Laura Dale, Laura Kate Dale had a chance to play uh, an early build of it, and she found that parts of the AI were programmed too well, so that hiding—I think it, she said that hiding in like in a cupboard was ineffective because the AI was smart enough to look in the cupboard, hmm. not with without any prior, not without any you know reason to. Just I've seen someone. There's a cupboard here. I should look in the cupboard. It gives no chance for the cupboard to actually be an effective escape route. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the the, the system itself became advanced and defeated, uh, being so advanced, defeated other aspects of its own system. And you sacrifice gameplay for that 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 realism, that immersion. Exactly, it breaks the mental model. In so, what what uh, Thomas found was sort of five points uh, to making interactive storytelling uh, to keep your mental model overlapping with the narrative that you are trying to convey uh, and maintain uh, agency, presence within the game world. Um, step one, focus on the storytelling. Uh, step two, the player should spend most of their time playing. Anytime you take the game, anytime you take the player out of a situation where they are playing, you're breaking the mental model. Look at Metal Gear Solid 2 and consider how much agency you feel in that game. You keep being removed from it because it's not you. You're, you're playing a character. Um, well, you can, three... you can immerse in a character as well. That's something we've seen. Yeah, actually, if I guess True. I'm supposed to be the character in the game, uh, a lot less immersive. You, you wouldn't see this. You wouldn't see the explosive Sonic the Hedgehog fan community <laughs> if players weren't able to project something of themselves into a game world. Well, back in those games, game, in those games, <laughs> back in, back those, in games. those days, games were largely about characters more than they yes. were about trying to create immersion. I guess, though, also, that's where we get a lot of very Yeah, okay, games. not so much the games you were playing. Like, you know, Act Razor, and yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I'm not saying so, so, that uh, a bunch uh, of them were Ultima silent. Ultima was like, a thing. This was the age of mascot gaming. Yes. That's true. There, there is there is a difference between projecting, which is putting yourself onto the character, um, and presence, which is you are in the game world. 
Well, you know um, what's really good for establishing a feeling of presence? Eh, Jeb? Jeb? Proprioception. Bad rats. Ah! Ugh. B- Bad rats makes for excellent presence. If you suffer <laughs> from proprioception, please see a doctor. If your proprioception <laughs> continues for more than seven hours... Wait, everyone's proprioception... <laughs> everyone's proprioception continues all the time! Oh, no. <laughs> Women mm. who are pregnant or nursing should... Consult your physician before attempting proprioception. Look, uh... Pro- if you have a heart condition. <laughs> proprioception is the term for the sense of your own body. It is sexual disease. <laughs> oh, no. But if you close your eyes, you know where your hands are. You know the shape your mouth is making intuitively to make the sounds you want to make without looking at yes. it. Yes. That's what proprioception mm-hmm. is. I enjoy those weird moments where you're being very still and you lose that sense for a minute. You're just like, I know my hand is there, but oh, it feels exactly. like it's not there. Um, I was talking earlier today about proprioception in first-person shooters. Yes. This this is very important to me about, like, there are lots of games which are doing FPSs, which I think are bad FPSs, because what they're trying to use the first-person shooter for is unnecessary. But a lot of... A lot of... Um, a lot of first-person shooters would actually be better off being Gears of War-style third-person shooters. Most of the Call of Duty mm-hmm. games would be better off being Gears of War because they are about timing, stop and drop, um, correct uh, assessment of environment around you. And a first-person shooter actually makes you worse at environmental awareness than than you are in real life. The peripheral vision, the ability to turn your head very subtly. Oh, yeah, I've always had that problem with first-person stuff. That's one of the reasons I just don't enjoy it much. Those elements... Oddly enough, enough, uh, advanced... Uh, advanced warfare is more about uh, uh, movement within yeah. that space than it is about uh, assessing the space. So exactly, mm-hmm. it manages first... to actually be a, a, an exception to that. Exactly, yep. the first person experience—the thing that it gives players better than anything else—is a feeling of motion, which is why Dishonored Blink feels so good. Because you do genuinely feel like you just teleported. It's an amazingly liberating movement feeling, which wouldn't work as well in third person. It would be more remote. That's why it worked for Mirror's Edge, despite being yeah. you know, having its inherent difficulties of trying to do that kind of movement in first person. Mirror's Edge has a lot of problems. A lot of them are in level design rather than system design, though. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly... Uh, Doom. In Doom, yep. the your body, your place of your body, and the fact that you move around like you're on a rocket sled mm. is important to the gameplay because almost every enemy is throwing an object at you and you can avoid it. Mm. So having mm-hmm. a sense of your body, how close you can be, how far you can be, how you can move around projectiles, it's part of the game experience. The ludic system of how much health there is in the level, how much you can recover, how much you can afford to lose. All of that dare stuff. I mention, dare I mention tribes. Tribes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I can't remember which tribes it was. I think it was the most recent one, where one of the elements was you get flung through the air in these enormous catapults, and we're talking 30, 40 seconds of air time, and players found that that was a new game unto itself. Like, that part of the game where you're being flung through the air 
You can still shoot. So there's this ah, whole ah. level of the game which is almost like a rail shooter where you're looking down at the ground, you're trying to predict enemy movement, and you are leading shots because there is enough because distance this is, between... Because this isn't hit scan. Yeah, and there's enough distance mm-hmm. between where you are and they are that they're going to have to literally walk into your bullet. <laughs> First person games do that sort of stuff amazingly, but when you're mostly doing things like cover-based shooting, hugging a wall, go Gears of War. You get to express more character, you get to have more visual design, and you get a better play experience for having awareness of your environment. Yep. And and also, um, narratively speaking, third person, you get to actually see the character that you are projecting onto, where first person is more about that feeling of presence. Yeah. You are the person you are seeing through their eyes. This is you moving around in this space, as opposed to somebody who has lines and a personality within their space. Fox has got the expression on her face like she's about to say something, so I'm just being quiet here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm just wondering whether it's worthwhile bringing up or if it's not really worth. I mean, I, I always with the discussion of projecting onto a character, I get back into the fact that my experience with games is a much more voyeuristic one. I don't mm-hmm. seek to project. Um, you know, what I look for in a game isn't uh, you know, this is me, and you have to make me care about these people or this world or what's happening, so much as it is, this is me looking at the game, and you have to make me care about these people in the world. That, like, it's still the same level of commitment to the narrative and the same willingness to buy into it and, you know, uh, treat this like it's a real thing, but yes. from an omnipotent godly perspective... <laughs> And and that's fine. Uh, there's actually a couple of other points that Thomas made to for either case really uh, to help build that narrative and and sort of get that care um, that he wants in his his upcoming game. Uh, and and that's to um, any interactions that you do need to make narrative sense. Um, that you can talk to somebody and they say the same line over and over again does not make narrative sense. Um, which also goes into the next point, reducing the amount of repetition that you do <laughs> as minimum as possible. If you're doing new things, not necessarily new mechanics, mind you, um, but if you're doing something over and over again, that helps to break down your mental model. Um, and you begin to see it as, a, as more of a game, and you're doing these actions. I've heard a... Uh, I've heard a... Uh, uh... One complaint about Dark Souls 2 is that uh, a lot of the, the side stories that in order for them to advance, you have to exhaust NPC dialogue completely. So the mm-hmm. game is rewarding you for causing this repetition to happen. Mm. Yep. That said, uh, I don't think Dark Souls 2 wants you to care about its narrative. <laughs> Um, Which is strange because Dark Souls One has such an excellently executed. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Dark Dark Souls Dark Souls Two, like I mentioned on a previous podcast, starts off with saying that you're going to lose all your souls all the time. There's an early monument in the game with how many how many times people have died in the game. It's very upfront with its Dark Soulsness. I I have heard an interesting theory uh, about the narrative of. Dark Souls 2, which is one of futility due to repetition. 
Because it's a sequel uh, to a game that was itself lightning in a bottle. Hmm. Well, yeah. Demon well, Souls both, was also very both, popular. <laughs> it, it's, it's both that elements of the story of Dark Souls 2 are about things happening over and over again, and that this is the way things will be, and there's not really a way to break out of that or to become special. Uh, which might also reflect on the developer's ideas for the game. That we could make a Dark Souls sequel. We obviously did. It's not going to be better than Dark Souls 1. <laughs> Why are we doing this? <laughs> it would be very easy to have that feeling working on that Why project. Are we st- why are we still recycling ideas from Kingsfield? <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, they did iterate on the ideas reasonably well from Kingsfield to Demon Souls to... True. And it looks like Bloodborne is going to iterate on some of the ideas whilst not necessarily duplicating them. Anyway. Well, that seems like it won't try to be the same thing, which is critical. Like, just mixing up enough. Yes. Um, yeah to give it some kind of freshness. That doesn't mean it has to be aiming for the same things that the first game did so well. It's going to be Eternal Ring 2. And now it's time for Retro Gaming News. All the news that's fit to print for the month ending February 2011. Brought to you by Consentical Instant Pasta Meals. Irresistible! Okay, starting again. We know that the January-February period is kind of a doldrums for games releases, so we only have four games that were released at this point in 2011. Alright, we all ready? Everyone with us? We, Our guest is prepared? Alright, first things first, to get the games that no one gives a shit about out of the way, we have a first-person shooter. Again, 2011 release. Bulletstorm? Call of something. Bulletstorm Gears isn't the one that... Gunfair. No, but you, you've got the right feel for the name. Um, <laughs> this one isn't Bulletstorm, Jeb. Uh, it's a PlayStation 3 exclusive, which kind of narrows it right down, if anyone bothered to remember PlayStation exclusives. Uh, was that made by Insomnia? No, 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 no. Uh, the trailer is a giant festival of blue and orange and British space Nazis. And it's this PlayStation of which you speak. (laughs) That was, uh, the hell get... Yeah, you're so close, you're so close. What's the name of that game? Oh, I, dude, this uh, was on the PS3 conference thing with Blue and Orange, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a release title. Boom! Blue and Orange! I don't yes. know what the game was, though. Yes! Resistance? Oh, well. It's, it's a sequel to a sequel. Resistance uh, 3 resisting even yeah. more? It's got a name that a 12-year-old boy would make up. Oh, oh, um... Well, oh, God, pick one. Killzone. Hey! hey! It's Killzone! It. Hey! Killzone 3, which was noteworthy for nothing. (laughs) I looked it up. There is almost nothing to say about this game. Alright, so, next one. This is a game that's available on Steam. Put this down so I stop making noise. It's a game that's available on Steam. It's a simulator type game. It isn't one of the big ones. Because those are on Origin. <laughs> yes, yeah, SimCity is on Origin. Cities XL? Does that mean my answer was wrong? Uh, you're close. You're really close. What, what did you say, Jeb? I said Cities, X- Cities XL. Yeah, you're really close. Um, Cities XL came out... Tropical? Cities XL came out in 2012. That's how close you are. Oh. <laughs> what year are we in? 2011. Right. 2011? 
stays in motion. Hey! I've never heard it. of that. Exactly. I, I have the sequel. Yeah, Cities XL, which apparently <laughs> isn't so bad. No, no, I have Cities in Motion too. Oh, hey. I haven't played Cities XL yet. They, they, they missed the perfect chance to give that an interesting sequel name. Like, if the first one was Cities in Motion, it could have been Cities at Rest, or Cities Over There, or Cities Staying in Motion. Cities in Motion is a transport, like a transport tycoon thing. Yeah. C- City, Cities XL is like a... <laughs> City, Cities XL is like a Simpsons thing. Same franchise, same developers, okay. different type of game. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. I'm just saying that it's a perfect one of those name precedents where they could have named the sequel something more interesting than first name with two mm. on the end. All right, then. Well, you'll be happy to know that the sequel to Cities XL is Cities 2XL. <laughs> Double XL. <laughs> Thanks, guys. So the next one is going to be a city just made up entirely of porn stores. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's a city entirely populated with me! (laughs) Alright. So, ladies. (laughs) (laughs) Look forward to it. (laughs) So, last two games from this month in 2011. Alright. It's a JRPG. It's a JRPG that has been connected by fans, but not by the developers, to CompuFreak's favourite SNES game. It's a JRPG on the NDS... On the NES? On the NDS. Oh. The DS RPG. Oh, yeah, sorry, the DS. So it's a time-traveling JRPG. Connected like just people... Fa- oh, Radiant Historia. Radiant Historia. Yeah, yeah. That's, That's an excellent game. Y'all should play it. Yeah. Do, do you know much about it, Tommy Freak? It's a matter, it's a matter of finding, nope. <laughs> finding DS uh, role-playing games for an affordable price can be... Yeah. It, it was... Yeah, it, it was sometime briefly after the uh, the PlayStation 1 era that uh, I stopped having the time and patience for JRPGs. <laughs> Unfortunately, so... it does still have that problem. It's a long game. It's got grind out the mm. bum. No, it, it's not grindy, like at all. The issue is that it's a time travel plot, and therefore you go back over significant events multiple times. Like this stuff where it's like, I have to let one of the characters die in this timeline so I can, like, tear off his robot arm and bring it back to this character in the other timeline in time to save their life. And So what you're telling me... That sounds fascinating. Sounds amazing. It's really well done. <laughs> what you're telling me is that there's a game where you have to do the same thing repeatedly. <laughs> no, you do notably different things to the same situation. Wow. Okay, so that that sounds cool. It, it is also quite pretty. Like, it looks really good. Nice Oh, it's got sprite beautiful work. sprite work, yeah. Really, really super cute. Um, and a fairly interesting alternative to the typical turn-based mechanic. It's still actually turn-based. It's not one of those hybrid real-time turn-based things that I really dislike. Um, mm-hmm. But it's got a system whereby you can wait and build up and take extra turns at once. So you basically rig okay. the turn order to only have your characters in it, and then they can do crazy combos and shit. And then, of course, you've like used up all your turns, and everyone has huge wait times. So then the enemy gets to beat the crap out of you if you've left them alive I, by that point. Bravely default. Does I, that. I recall that. Yeah, I recall that system in uh, Chrono Cross had something similar, and mm-hmm. Xeno Gears, I believe, as well. Ah, oh, yeah. Not I haven't that. played either of those, but I've heard a little about them. Not to pile on, mm-hmm. but a similar system works that way in Devil Survivor. Mm. Yeah? Yeah, uh, Animal Leg and Double Hit, the two oh, things I use so I, much. That, that's a very... Whenever you use them, idea. they postpone your order. Yeah. 
It does have the <laughs> fluid wait time up. Like, you know, you don't have fixed initiatives. It depends yeah. on what you do with your turn, right? Yeah. yeah. You, know what, uh, you, you know what game has you uh, going through different situations and seeing them turn out differently every time? Bad rats. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> that is exceptionally true. Uh... All right. And our last game <laughs> for this month. See, someday... Bloom. One day our, our our tag clouds is just going to be the giant word bad rats surrounded by loom, <laughs> fire emblem, and then a bunch of tiny little words. <laughs> like ludic. Yep. Loom Ooh, let's make Talon makes up words attack. Yeah. I'm 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 seeing like ludic and lewd at like the same size. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. Um it is a it is a first person shooter. Is it bullet storm? I never know these ones. God fuck damn it, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I said bullet storm earlier. <laughs> yeah, and I said it's not this one, Jeb. Hoping it would throw you off the scent. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound suspicious at all. By the way, you're the quiz master. Shed, shed a tiny tear for the PlayStation players because Bullet Storm came out the same day as Killzone Three. <laughs> In that you can have. This legitimately dumb game that thinks it's smart, or you can have this surprisingly smart game that's trying to fool everyone to thinking it's dopey. Oh, Bulletstorm is clever. Bulletstorm is smarter than it looks. Okay. Um, like yes. Saints Row sa- Three, smarter than it looks. Not or? Saints Row Three's level, but certainly smarter than it looks. Um, it, it but Bulletstorm has a problem in that it's very swear-heavy dialogue, so it's very easy, certainly for a certain type of person, ah. to go. This is this is bad dialogue. This is stupid dialogue. This is not very thoughtful or creative, and that's fine. I don't want to devalue the experiences of people who don't like hearing lots of swears. But the thing with Bulletstorm is that it is a, a smart, funny game which swears a lot. So sometimes the swearing can include it. That's been the Downloadable Concept Podcast. I'd like to thank our special guest, Copy Freak. Hello. Goodbye. And that's been Fox. That's been Talon. And that's been Jeb. Stay tuned next week when I attempt to steal another one of Talon's game ideas for personal benefit. It's like a game, but not. Or is it? I had that argument on Twitter. We can talk about that later. Still salty. Still salty!